Have you ever felt like life just punched you in the gut? Leaving you feeling like you're out of breath, you have to be reminded to breathe, feeling like you're a little disoriented about what has just taken place. All of these are ideas of what happens when life just feels like it punches you in the gut. For some of you, it's when you got the word that you have cancer and the battles that you are about ready to face and endure. For others of you, it's when you got word that you lost a loved one unexpectedly and you feel like, where's, how do I catch my breath? What has happened in life? All of this feels like life has just punched you in the gut. For those of you, it's decisions that you made that you deeply, deeply regret took place. And you are living with those decisions and you feel like life just continues to punch you in the gut and the gut. The reality is, is that the Christian life is hard. And the reality is, is that the Christian life is a battle. It is a war that we are called to live and to continue to fight and fight and fight. Because it is a battle. And if you are growing in your relationship with Christ, then you are in this battle together. I can guarantee you this. Every big decision that we have made as a church, our church has faced a battle. In our leaders, in our staff, and in people in our church. Every big decision I've made in my life, it has been a battle because I've been faced with opposition. And the reality is, is that when we face opposition, we face difficulty, it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to question God, but it's not okay to blame God for those situations because it wasn't God's fault that he was the one who brought sin into this world. Humanity did. Humanity brought sin into this world when we fell into temptation uh, with the enemy and that brought sin into this world, which brought brokenness, it brought hurt, and it brought pain. And that's the reality that you and I are living with each and every single day. And so when it comes to this reality, and we begin to blame God, God, why did this happen to me? God, how dare you let this take place in my life? And we blame him, we lose sight of the true enemy of the story. Because as we blame God, the enemy goes out the back door and begins to laugh and saying, ha ha, I've deceived them to be focused in on who I want them to be focused in on, not the true enemy of this story. And like I said, the reality is, is that we are living in a battle and the Christian life is a battle. Look at the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus is this picture of where his earthly ministry started with a battle in the wilderness, where he was tempted for 40 days in isolation when he was tired and when he was hungry. And then it ends in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is filled with deep levels of stress over the impending crucifixion that he is about ready to endure, and it ends with a battle. So how much different should our lives be than his if we are truly followers of Jesus through this story? And we're going to look at this battle, and we need to be prepared for the battle that is ahead for us as a church and as us as individuals. And that's why Paul opens this up for preparation for the battle in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. How do you and I prepare? It's we have to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We have to develop this strength. There's a branch in the military called intelligence, and their whole mission is to provide timely, relevant, and accurate intelligence to tactical, operational, and strategic levels of commanders. I took that right off the internet that that is their entire mission, is that they study the enemy, they begin to learn everything around the enemy, and they provide uh, basic intel on what the army needs to know and to provide them with that. And so 
for us to prepare for the mission and the battles that we have ahead, we have to become strong in the Lord. And there's many people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament who had to be strengthened in the Lord for the battle that they took place. In 1 Samuel uh, 30, verse 6, we see that David strengthened himself in the Lord. What battle was David facing? David's wives were just captured. And it was taken away in battle, and he's disoriented, he's overwhelmed, and he needs God to strengthen him for the battle at hand. In Zechariah 10, 12, it says this about the nation of Israel. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. So they needed to be strengthened because they had just been taken away in the battle into exile, and God needed to strengthen them and to prepare them for the task at hand. In Joshua 1.7, it says this, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commands you. What has just taken place? Moses, who is the man who led Israel out of slavery after 400 years, is now taking them to the edge of the promised land, and Joshua is their new leader. And Joshua is going to take them into this promised land. But there are going to be battles that they need to face. And he tells them, he exhorts them, be strong and very courageous. And then a New Testament one. Paul tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. He's telling them to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be aware of what's going on, and to stand firm and to hold your ground in your relationship with Christ because you are going to be in a battle. You're going to face opposition. And so we need to be watchful and vigilant and to be aware of what's going on. So how do we stay strong in the Lord? We become dependent upon Christ. The way that you and I are able to be strengthened and strong in the Lord, this may not seem right, but it is how we do it, and we become dependent upon Christ. As we look at what we've learned through the book of Ephesians over the last six months, as we've studied it, as we spent time in it, as we've uh, opened up the scriptures and learned about it, is this common theme that comes up over and over and over. It's that we are in Christ. This is our identity. This is our purpose. This is where we stand upon. It is the fact that we are in Christ. And this is a simple truth to know, but it's a very, very difficult truth to live out in our everyday life. Because the very reality that we are in Christ means that our identity is not found in our hobby, by our job, by the position we have in society, by if we have a family or we don't have a family, if we're single, we're married, or we're divorced. None of that is where our identity is found. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And so if we believe that we are in Christ, that means His life becomes our life. His strength becomes our strength. His way becomes our way. His power becomes our power. And it's the same strength and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you and I. And that's what it means to find our strength and power in Christ, is to find our identity in Him. And this is a lifelong journey of learning how to depend upon Christ and found our identity in Him. The more battles you face, the more you learn to depend upon Christ. The more hardship you face, the more that dependence on Christ becomes a reality and an opportunity in your life. In the same way, soldiers just don't get taken off and thrown into the battle. They have to be prepared. They have to go through trainings. They go through uh, basic training, and then they go into uh, ranger school if they're in the army, and then they go into uh, air trainings, and then they go into delta trainings, and if they can make it even further, they continue to move on into those areas. 
And every single time they learn a very valuable lesson to depend upon the person who's in front of them and who's leading them and to depend upon the people that are helping them work through this side by side. Because they learn to do this. And so if we want to be strong in the Lord, we need to learn to depend upon Christ in each and every single one of those situations and seasons. Because we will not make it on our own strength as a parent if we want to raise our kids to follow Jesus. As an employee, if we want to be a godly employee, we will not be making it as a mentor or community leader trying to do this on our own strength. We will burn out. We will come to our end of our rope and we will be left on the end. The reality is we need God's strength to continue to move forward. But as we're fighting in this battle, as we're waging in this battle against our enemy, we need to never lose sight of the war that is at hand. Because there is a war that has already been won that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross when he laid down his life for you and I, taking upon the sins of humanity on his shoulders and resurrecting from the grave, proving that he has the power over sin and death. I want to look at a couple of verses with you that talk about this. In Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. That's to the left in your Bible, or we have it available to my right. Romans 5 says this. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, this was Adam's disobedience who brought sin into the world, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, this is Jesus, the many would be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's look at one other one in 1 Corinthians 15. One book over to the right. First Corinthians 15, verse 54 says, When the perishable put on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we may be in a battle, and we may face battles every single day, but the reality is is the war is already won on your behalf. Jesus won that war for you and for me. And so when we are in our battle, we need to have the hope that the war is already over, that Jesus has already won it, and so we can rest in it, and we need to stay focusing on it, because that will help us persevere and endure and be prepared for the battle that is ahead of us. So back to Ephesians chapter 6. That was our preparation. Now our provision for the battle. The provision for the battle, in verse 11 he says this, put on the whole armor of God meaning that we're called to put on this armor of God, meaning that the military doesn't just send a soldier out in civilian clothes to go into battle. He provides them with the tactical gear to be prepared for the battle that is at hand. And the same is true for God. God provides us with the tactical gear, the military gear, to be able to hand the, handle the battles that you and I are going to face. And he tells us to put on this. It pictures this idea of putting on a set of clothing. And most likely, Paul at this point is chained to a Roman soldier. And he's looking over as he's penning these words in the book for the Ephesian church. And he's looking over at this soldier and going, this is a beautiful picture of the armor that this 
soldier is wearing of what the armor that God's people need to wear as well. But this is a picture and a command that's not just given to us as individuals. It's called for me to wear my armor. It's called for you to wear your armor. But the command is for the whole to put on their armor. Because unlike Jason Bourne or Jack Ryan or Jack Bauer who are one-man armies, God calls a whole army to be ready and to be in their armor. Because how many military operations are won because of one soldier? In real life, not many, not at all. It means that there's a whole platoon, there's a whole army that's put together that puts on their army, that is put in the prepar- put on their armor, that's been put on the preparation and the time and the investment, and so they're will- ready and willing to win the battle that is at hand. Which means that there is a call for you and I together, collectively, to be in battle and to support and to uphold one another. One of the most dangerous parts about this pandemic is the isolation that is taking place in people's lives, where people are feeling isolated, alone, without support, without help, and the armor of God is being chinked away into their life. If you look at just the brokenness and the darkness of what's going on in our society around us because of the isolation that's taking place, there are at least six suicides that have been connected to the church at Ecclesia over this pandemic. The level of child abuse that is taking place is risen drastically, but is going unreported. That is the evil of the isolation that is taking place during this time. And so we need to support one another. We need to strengthen one another. We need to put on our armor together. It's a call for the whole of us to be together. And that's why I'm so grateful for those of you who are leading communities in this season. Whether that be through email, through Zoom, or in person if you feel comfortable with it, you are leading the charge in the battle to provide support and community for those who need it. If Jesus' greatest form of temptation took place when he was in isolation in the wilderness and in the Garden of Gethsemane, then who are we to be any different? And we're going to find our greatest forms of temptation in isolation. And so we need one another to support us. And maybe that means for you who are sitting on the sidelines, maybe it's time for you who are able, who are willing to step into the game and to start leading communities and to bring people out of isolation and into a supporting role with one another. And I want to encourage you that if that's you and God's tugging on the heart, your heart during this time, that you would step into this role and to move them forward in their walk with Jesus. This is the call. So, that was our provision for God. Now, the enemy at the end of verse 11. This is our enemy in the battle. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Meaning that we are called to stand. We're called to endure the opposition and the battle at hand. We're called to persist against the opposition that we are facing. We have to continue to move forward. Why? Because we have an adversary. We have the devil. For some circles of Christianity, they don't believe that the devil is real. They don't acknowledge his existence. But the reality is, as he's spoken about in the Old Testament, Jesus talked about him. The word Satan uh, is used 52 times in the Bible, which means adversary. And he's called the devil 35 times, which means he's our slander. Which means that every single time that you and I are growing in a relationship with God or doing things uh, in God's name, we have an adversary who is opposing the very work of God in us. And we have somebody who is slandering us, who is making up lies about us, trying to uh, get us to stumble and to fall. 
this is a real person who is in opposition to the hand of God, the work of God, and God's people. Now, the question becomes is, who is he? If we're going to look at uh, the, and the government, uh, the intelligent side of it, and studying who our enemy truly is, we need to know who he was, the role that he played, and what his schemes are. And so let's look at who he was. He was the chief angel, the anointed cherub, who sparkled with all the jewels until he rebelled against God and tried to take over God's throne. And I want to show you uh, two passages which talk about that. Ezekiel chapter 28, that's in the Old Testament, to the left in your Bible. Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, we'll have this up on the screen for you. Uh, Bear with me. We're going to look at seven verses right here. Ezekiel 28 verses 12 through 19, says this, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. So he's talking, now we know who he's talking about. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and the crafted in gold with the settings in your engraving. So he had the brains, he had the beauties, and he had all the best threads for him. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, which means that he was kind of the worship leader. He was the one who was leading uh, the angels in worship. I placed you where the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of you a, fi- a fire you walked, you were blameless in your ways from the days you were created until the unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you in profane things from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to the face their eyes on you. By the multitudes of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought you fire out of your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew, know you Amongst the people are appalled at you. You have come to the dreadful end, and you shall be no more. So what caused his fall? Look with me at Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14, that's a little bit further left in your Bible. Jeremiah, keep going. Isaiah 14. Verse 12. We're going to look at Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, notice his pride, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So that was his pride. That's what he thought he could accomplish. But look at his, his, humili- or his humiliation that took place in verse 15 through 17. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let the prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations laid in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from the grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, 
like a dead body trampled underfoot. He, it was his pride that caused him to fall out, and he took out a third of the heavens and the angels with him. The second thing that we need to know about uh, the devil is he appear, the first time he appears in the Bible is in the form of a serpent where he tempts Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we're not going to turn there, it says that the serpent was more crafty and cunning than any other, which means that he had this devious plan to cause the fall of humanity to distort the very words of God and to place doubt into the minds of the people so that they would fall into some sin and be separated from God. That was his devious plan. But this is his end. This is, where, this is where it all comes to the end in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. This is his end. This is what's going to happen to him. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon... And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, so that's how we know who the dragon is, spoken about in Genesis 3.1, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He is thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is his destruction. He's thrown out of heaven. He's going to be thrown into a pit, Revelation tells us. And this is his end and this is destruction. And he knows it and he's desiring to take anybody who he can with him. Now in Ephesians, it talks about his schemes or his methods. And he has a method by which he wants to try and cause the fall of humanity to take God's people and detour them off of God's plan and distract them. And he's had thousands and thousands of years to prepare an army to follow in his footsteps and to join him in this quest to cause destruction in God's people. And so he has studied personalities. He knows personalities. He knows what each personality and each individual is going to be attracted to based upon the different personality traits and desires and things that they like. And so he tries to put up these schemes and these methods to try and distract us. But I want to expose his schemes. I want to expose some of his methods so that you and I can be aware of what God's word has to say about some of these schemes and how he's trying to work in a stealthy and deceptive way. And so let's expose these with the truths of God's word. The number one thing we see here is we see him opposing God's work in Zechariah 3.1. Zechariah 3.1. If your fingers are getting tired from turning, go ahead and look up on the screen, but I will turn there for you. Zechariah 3, 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand accusing him. So he's trying to distort God's work. He's constantly accusing, accusing, accusing. He's accusing you. He's accusing Joshua the high priest. He's accusing me. This is one of his schemes that he's trying to do in your life and my life. The second thing he tries to do is he tries to pervert God's word. Matthew 4, 6. This is in the New Testament. The opening gospel of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6 says this. I'll start in verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. So he's quoting scripture here. 
Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here, the enemy has studied God's word, he knows God's word, and he's trying to pervert God's word by getting you to do things that God's word never intended. And how does he do that? He pulls the verses out of their context, and he combines them together to try and get a different meaning or a different direction. But that shows you, how do we combat that? We have to be in God's word, we have to study God's word, we have to know God's word, so that like Jesus, we could say, no, those two don't fit into the context and the whole of scripture, because this verse says this, which is contradictory to the very temptations that Satan is trying to throw in your path and mine. The third thing he tries to do, he tries to hinder God's servants. First Thessalonians 2.18. To the right in your Bible from Ephesians, First Thessalonians 2.18. Paul desires to go back and to see the church in Thessalonica. And he says this, Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul wanted to go back to strengthen the church in Thessalonica, but Satan continued to hinder them and to help try and prevent him from getting back there because he did not want, the enemy did not want uh, Paul to strengthen the church in Thessalonica. And so if you're doing God's work, he is going to try and hinder you from doing that work. He also tries to hinder the gospel. 2 Corinthians uh, 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we learn here is that Satan blinds the eyes of the unbelieving people so that they cannot see the gospel and the good news and the freedom that the gospel offers. He makes it seem like bondage is attractive. Have you ever seen somebody, you're like, why are you just not getting the gospel? Why do you not desire to follow Jesus? Don't you see that you're in bondage? It's because the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us, is blinding their eyes. And so we need to pray that God would take the blinders off of their eyes. Uh, as the uh, Beatitudes tell us that the pure in heart will see God. We need to pray for the people to have pure hearts so they may see the reality of who God is and so they can be a blessed people through this process. And so this is another way that God tries, or that Satan tries to hinder a believer's life, and this is part of his schemes. The fifth one, he tries to appear as an angel of light. He tries to appear as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. says this, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, meaning that he tries to be like God's people. He tries to bring us out into the light because evil is associated with darkness and Jesus is associated with light. He's called the light of the world. His church is called the light of the world, which means that we need to be connected to Christ. We need to be strengthened in the Lord so that we can expose the darkness in our lives and in the lives of others. And then we need to be connected to God's church because it's through that that the light of the world comes in and we can discern what is actually 
a fabricated light and what is the true light of what God desires for us. And so this is his schemes. These are the methods by which the enemy wants to try and deceive you and I to get you and I off of the battle that God has ahead for us and to continue to persevere and to fight. And there's a couple of uh, circles in Christianity that have negative uh, implications around Satan. For some, they overemphasize his role in a believer's life, meaning that they focus in on him, their attention is completely devoted to him, to where they actually blame Satan for their sin. And what happens there is you lose the responsibility of growing in your relationship with Christ, and it stunts your growth because you are blaming and you are not taking responsibility for your own sin, and you're not growing from there. And so this circle is a dangerous place to be. There's another camp that completely neglects that he even exists and causes us to not even want to focus in on him or to be aware of him. And what happens there is we begin to blame God when bad things happen because we lose sight of the true enemy of the story and the one who is trying to deceive us and to manipulate us in his deception. And so we need to have this balance of being aware that he really exists and that we're the hard things and the sin comes from, but we also need to keep our eyes fixed upon the author and the finisher of our faith, as Hebrews says, in the person and work of Jesus. Hey, he wraps up verse 12 with who our battle is with, who our battle is with. He says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here is who our battle is with. And when a military operation gets going, they know that there are going to be innocent bystanders around this thing. And so they need to focus in and who the mission is really trying to take down. Who is the enemy at hand? And so they need to be able to know who their battle is with. And it says this, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not struggle with flesh and blood. We do not... uh, be in combat against flesh and blood. It's got this picture of hand-to-hand combat. How many of you guys have ever wrestled in high school? Because you think back to that. Or we have a couple of people at Ecclesia who are collegiate uh, state champions in wrestling. And the nature of wrestling is this. It's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. The amount of shape you have to be in, the endurance you have to have to be able to do that. Some people I've talked to that were state champions, they had to cut 10 pounds in a couple weeks or they had to gain 10 pounds through this and the training and the mindset and the stamina that they have to be. This is why an MMA fight each round lasts less than five minutes because they don't have the strength, they don't have the stamina to continue to go along because it is exhausting. And when you see that round end as they go off into their corner, they're not just full of energy and ready for, ex- ready for the next round. They're exhausted. They're sweating. They're, they've got blood running down their face. They're sitting. They're trying to get water. Their coach is trying to get them to focus in. It is exhausting. If you want to uh, operate a business in Christ-honoring way, it is going to be exhausting. If you want to raise your kids to know Jesus and to follow him, it is going to be exhausting. If you want to be a teacher and form the minds of the children in this next year, it is going to be exhausting, especially as you do it on Zoom, because three hours on Zoom is more exhausting than eight hours of having kids run around. If you want to be a community leader, it can be exhausting in the church. And this is just the reality of being in combat and being in struggle and being in the battle. But here is who our battle is not against. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. 
Our battle is not against the people that you and I follow on social media. It is not against the people that we go to church with. It is not against the people that we interact with or we see on a semi-regular basis. And the more as our culture heads into November, the more we are seeing that people are being deceived by thinking that their battle is against flesh and blood, that their battle is against a political party, that their battle is against people who have different views and values than they do. And one of the schemes of the devil that Paul addresses in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 that we already talked about is his scheme is to desire to exploit strained relationships and angry feelings, according to Ephesians 4.27. So he's taking relationships that are already on thin ice and that are already strained, and he's trying to exploit those things, and he's producing in us anger and frustration and resentment towards God's people. And when we fall into that deception trap, guess what falls at stake? Our witness. You and I's ability to relate to God's people and to be a light into the darkness sometimes is threatened or we become disqualified by the very antagonistic and anger and frustration that we are producing in our conversations, by our posts on social media, we are losing our witness. And you may be saying, well, I'm trying to win the next four years. That may be true. You may win the next four years, but you may lose the opportunity for eternity when it comes to seeing somebody come to Jesus by conversations or by anger and the frustration that the enemy is trying to exploit in your life. So don't let your allegiance to a political party be greater than your allegiance to the gospel. Because your allegiance to the gospel should be the primary thing that you are vigilant about, that you fight for, that you battle with, not a political party. Despite what happens in November, our allegiance to Christ is the thing that we need to hold on to more than any other thing. So that is not who our battle is against. That is not who we wrestle with. We wrestle with the army that Satan has uh, raised up. And it is not with that we can see, it's with what we cannot see. He says this at the end of verse 12. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he lists off the rankings of this army that Satan has raised up to continue in Satan's work, to spread darkness, to spread hurt, to spread pain, to spread destruction. Because the whole purpose of the enemy, as Jesus says, is to come to steal, to kill, and destroy. And that is his army that is behind him. And we're not going to get into this too much, but there's a couple of truths that I want to pull out. Their entire aim, what's this army's entire aim? Their aim is to alienate God's people away from God and his people. So his aim is to use the emotion of shame and to pause, cause you to head into isolation and to isolate yourself from God and his people in hiding because of your sin. And every single one of us are tempted to do this, to become an alienated from God and his people when sin enters into the picture. But don't let him win with shame. Let redemption win by entering in to the gospel and allowing Christ to forgive you and to restore you and to head on this journey. The other thing we see that this army focuses on, they desire to create confusion amongst God's people. If there is one thing that we are learning during this pandemic is there's a lot of confusion. 
Who can you trust? Medical, uh, doctors, can you trust uh, social media? Can you trust news? All of these things are brought into question at this point, and it's creating a bunch of confusion, and Satan's army is making this their playground to continue to try and confuse God's people during this time. The third thing that they're aiming to do is they aim to get God's people to engage in sexual perversion to hinder God's will from going forth in their life. The sexual perversion that is taking place and laws that are recently being passed to promote the sexual perversion is a threat not just to the people who don't know Christ, but it's also a threat to the church. And I'm so proud of the people who have stepped forward during this season and to step out and say, I'm not going to let shame have the last word. I'm going to allow redemption to take place. And they're getting involved in the 423 ministries that we offer here to help provide restoration and freedom from the bondage that sexual sin has caused. And when that bondage begins to be lifted, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, that the will of God begins to take place and unfold in their lives. And so don't allow Satan's army to deceive you and to stay in the sexual perversion. The fourth thing that we learn here is they spend time learning God's wisdom in order to thwart God's plan. Meaning that they spend time studying God's word. They knew, Satan knew God's word. And so he uh, tempted Jesus with the very words of Scripture in a distorted way. And so he's training his armies in the truths of God's word so that they can try and thwart it and distort it even off 1%. Because if you get off track even 1%, you can end off on a whole different road if you forsake the gospel for even 1%. I love to fish. This is what I'm going to wrap up with. And I've been out on the ocean 30, 40 miles in deep, deep fog. And the only thing that can keep you knowing where you're going is your radar for what's around you and your compass. And I've let everything else around me as I'm driving a boat out in this ocean to distract me based upon the things that are going on behind me or the things that are going on in front of me. And next thing I know is I lose my direction on my compass and I've turned 180 degrees or sometimes 360 degrees and didn't even know it because I got lost in the fog. That's why we have to stay focused in on the compass of our life. And what is the compass of our life? It's God's word. It's the armors of God that we're going to talk about specifically next week that are going to help us stay away from getting thwarted by Satan and his evil army that he has raised up. And so I want to encourage you this week as you go that you prepare for the battles that are at hand by spending time in God's word and worshiping him. And that you prepare for the battles that you are going to face by surrounding yourself with God's people, whether that be digitally or in person, and so that you can become a part of the kingdom of God moving forward and that you are prepared for the battles that you face. Let's pray.